Energy Reimagined is the Energy Academy's platform to explore the big ideas facing energy. We started LUMO because we saw an opportunity to create a platform to bring the ideas at the edge of the sector to the forefront in a fun and approachable way. Originally intended to be an in-person event, and I can see a lot of you who are going to be there on the call today. Due to COVID, we shifted LUMO online and have been producing and releasing a series of podcasts. There are many more of these to come and live panels too, like today's, of course. A big, big thank you to our partners at Orion, Genesis, Araake, Eka, Christchurch NZ, Ministry of Social Development and Ara Institute of Canterbury for supporting us in making LUMO happen. This panel on what is going to drive the change we need falls under our Energy and Humanity LUMO theme, which explores how far we have come and how far we could go with energy. I'll hand it over to our facilitator, John O'Brett, to get things started. John? Kia ora, thank you, Brian. Kia ora, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Um, as we explore the conversation about what we need to do to be the change we need. And so, first of all, a few introductions to get uh, to get started. I've met a few of you in my time, and it's great to have so many of you online with us today. But so previously, my history was with Kinetics and Orion. I had 10 or 11 years before recently leaving uh, that role to take on um, a new path in my career. But one of the things I held on to was is that I am the executive director for, this, for the Energy Academy, which is a, a, probably one of the most things I'm most passionate about in all the work I do. So it's exciting to be here with you on that today. Now, a bit about that Energy Academy. What, what is it and what have we been doing? So it's been in our conversation and for about the last two and a half years where at Orion and Kinetics, we started some exploratory conversations about what did we need to do about the capability we needed for the future? Because it's sort of what was emerging to us is there was so much change going on in our industry and in our sector and to our communities, et cetera. And the question we were left with is, will we have, what will the capability we need for the future and are we generating it at a fast enough rate? So the Energy Academy was, a, was an exploration to look into that. And so we, the Energy Academy has been working on closing this gap between the supply of um, capable capability for our industry and the demand. And we're tackling it in about three different ways, one of which is that we're trying to work to galvanise the sector to work together on these common challenges. Number two is about telling a better story about our sector and working out how we can show the path for people to join us and work with us. And the third is accelerating capability, both in the way we do it at industry, but the way we also integrate with um, with tertiary. So they're not small challenges that we're trying to take on. But today we're really we're we're discussing the topic about the change we need to be and what what will it take to get there? Because as you'll probably have all seen over the last few years, there's been a pretty big influx in the conversation about how do we decarbonize a more sustainable New Zealand. And when you look into that, a huge amount of the of the target of how we might do that is driven by the energy sector, which is, makes it both daunting and exciting at the same time. But our aim is to see how we can make a more sustainable, equitable and prosperous New Zealand. So the energy sector has to both go through a transition itself, but it also has to how it works with others to, to help drive the transition. So the question we're posing our panellists today is what is going to drive the change we need to realise the fu this future and how do we go about delivering that change? And we're lucky to be joined by three uh, 
excellent panelists today, and I'll quickly introduce all three of them if I can, and then, then I get the chance to pose a few challenging questions to them. So the first is Nikki Sutherland. Nikki, welcome. Nikki is the uh, currently the GM of Investment and Engagement at ECA. Um, she leads ECA's delivery group, whose aim is to make it easier for New Zealand businesses to choose clean and clever energy. Now, Nikki has an extensive experience in this, 25 years in executive roles um, across uh, the energy industry. She's worked with Transpower and, and in the oil and gas industry, worked for generators, retailers, manufacturers, and transport operators. So it's excellent to have Nikki's wide range of experience here. And ex, as she's an ex-electricity regulation specialist, which will be great when we have some conversations about systemic changes, I'm sure that she'll want to talk about. So has previously spent time writing energy policy and laws and giving, um, and which has been great uh, building on her degrees in law and political economics. So Nikki, thank you for joining us. Secondly, we have Joe Fair, and Joe uh, is co-founder and director of Future Work Studio, a New Zealand company helping organisations reimagine the concept and the world of work, which is a pretty exciting area to be in. And I'm sure that Joe will bring us some challenging thoughts about that. Joe, before that, Joe's had many years, about 20 years, working across many uh, industries and, and international jurisdictions, working for a number of well-known organisations, both domestically and globally. One time in her career, she was global head of HR for Fonterra. Joe led the people strategy for more than 22,000 people across 50-plus markets, so which is pretty, I'm sure, was a head-scratching role at times, Joe. Joe and her team at Future Work Studio are working with the Energy Academy to create a common platform for the New Zealand energy sector to connect and collaborate. Some of you may have seen that, which we've called LUMO 364. For those that don't know why it's called LUMO 364, it's for the 364 days you weren't going to be at the LUMO conference. Now that we don't have a LUMO conference, we may have to think about renaming that one, Brian, to see if it's the right name for the future. Our last panellist we're lucky to be joined with is Andrew McLeod. Uh, Andrew is the Chief Executive of North Power. Um, for those who don't know, North Power is one of the New Zealand's largest um, uh, corporate organisations inside the electrical sector with about 1,200 staff operating the electricity sector in Whangarei and surrounding districts, fibre network, and a, and a very large contracting business uh, associated with that. Andrew's got more than 20 years' experience across the heavy engineering, water, gas, and electricity utility sector in New Zealand and UK. And previous to North Power, he had roles with PowerCo and Vector. So, and um, Andrew's been leading North Power over the last four five years, and um, and is setting that business up for a uh, for a massive future. So, it's great that we've got three panelists from diff distinctly different backgrounds to be able to ask the same question of, which is about what do we need to do to be the future or drive the future we need. So I'm going to so now rattle into questions, if that's okay. Now, I think, uh, I'm sure Eric will be posting it, but if you've got questions that you would like to pose to the um, panellists, use the chat function. Is that right, Erica? We use the chat function to um, work our way through that. Um, but in the first instance, Nikki, if I could start with you, if that's okay. You, you and I were talking the other day about looking at the systemic changes needed to drive the change we need. Um, and I'm not going to go too deep into it. I'm going to let you explore that. But I'm also really interested to know, you know, EEC is obviously probably ripping into this already. So what areas, so what are the systemic changes you think we need to be to drive the change we need? And what is EEC already in play with at the moment on this uh, on this topic? Uh, kia ora, kia ora, Jono and tēnā koutou to, to my other panellists. Uh, I will answer that question. But first, I'd just like to balance out the really dry executive legal kind of background that Jono has very correctly given you all about me. 
Um, <laughs> I was I was very very fortunate to be able to balance that out a couple of years ago by spending um, two years in the leadership team of the provincial growth fund, and um, and its mahi was all about um, kickstarting regional economic development. I'm, I'm very passionate about economic development, um, our rangatahi, especially in the regions. And I think that that is kaupapa that I'll take with me forever and is deeply informing the way that at ECA we go about um, this transition because it can't just be a green transition. It needs to be a transition that's about putting New Zealand into its best possible footing for economic productivity, prosperity, inclusion of, um, of all parts of our community. So I feel very grateful to have had that experience. Well, systemic change. Um, systemic change is needed because this is a system challenge and it's only a system response that can get us through the, the really very large barriers in, in all kinds of directions. Um, I, I think in, in my mind, I break this down into about four components from from the perspective that I'm sitting in. Number one, biggest one, financial. And so at ECA, we really play in the space of energy. We're all about enabling clean energy and clever technology. And when you look at the, the new document that was uh, released by the government on Monday, the Emissions Reduction Plan, um, you can see the plan and the targets and the data of, of what are the sectors and components that are coming together to form this massive problem and um, and what are the best opportunities within that as, as shown by the data to really have an impact. So we focus on process heat because the data shows that process heat contributes 30% of New Zealand's emissions each year and that this is a sector that actually has the technology in place to be able to do something about it. So we see that as a really great opportunity. But the cost, the cost is the barrier. The cost is absolutely massive. Um, you'll always see different estimates, but but one of the ones that I've seen um, is that it could cost between four to six billion dollars to switch New Zealand's process heat from fossil fuels um, to renewables. And just to give you an example of scale as well, I'll just refer to some data down here, which is from our recent South Island um, process heat database, or boiler database. And it shows that there's 437 boilers in the South Island alone. 69 of those have converted to renewables. So that leaves 368 boilers that are still using non-renewable fuels. So system change number one, finance. We need to find ways to break through that financial barrier. And there's things that ECA is doing around that. Um, number two, uh, galvanising business action. Uh, too many businesses are still in the space of um, shouting from the rooftops the fact that they've made a commitment and are committing to decarbonise by 2050. A lot of them are committed to decarbonise by 2037, which is when the regulations um, come into effect, actually banning their coal boilers. So they'd have to do that whether they liked it or not. The number of businesses committing to doing it right now is still a tiny figure. And I heard someone say recently that human beings are wired to do what's in front of us and not wired to tackle things that are years away. Those are the sorts of things you usually want to, someone else to do for you. I think it's so true. Um, but businesses, none of us can wait for someone else, whether it's government, whether it's your suppliers, whether it's your consumers, to take the action. It's uh, the systemic changes, businesses, needing to commit to act now 
and there's some things we're doing in that space too. Uh, the third one is regulatory. So the regulatory settings need to change. I, I did just call out the ban on coal boilers, which is coming into place, which is wonderful. But especially for those of you who are working in the energy industry, and particularly if you're working at a distribution network, which is, in my mind, that's absolutely in the thick of the action and wears the biggest burden and carries the biggest burden of anyone in this transition. Um, then you'll be aware that the regulatory settings are actually preventing you from acting in the innovative um, and agile way that you know that you need to, to act. Um, in almost every case, the traditional ways of working won't work. We, we have to just set them aside. They're too slow, um, they're too narrow, they're too one-size-fits-all. And um, so there's a lot of work that needs to go into um, systematic change around regulatory settings so that we can ensure that um, we've got regulations that incentivise being agile and, crucially, incentivise using less electricity. That's absolutely key. Um, and then the third one, systematic change, is the need for more innovative thinking. And this is a change that we need in, in all facets. Um, it's not just in the EDBs, it's not just in businesses, it's also in government. Government needs to be co-investing and putting levers in more innovative ways. Um, I would uh, really um, give the LUMO team kudos for leading the innovative thinking in the skills and workforce space and in and how we bring people together. Um, so responding with the mindset that we need to navigate what's a rapidly changing mind requires real agility and openness to innovation and this is a, a challenge that all of us need to address. It's probably enough for our openings, opening foray, isn't it, Jono? That's fantastic. Thanks, Nikki. Um, I, I don't know if you saw it, but last night, the, uh, the Sunday episode on on you know the impact of uh, climate change um and it just your your comment about humans only being wired to do things that are right in front of them versus worry about the future the thing i took away from the sunday thing last night was it's not only right in front of us it's actually behind us you know in terms of we have to we have to act it's not like it's 10 20 years away all i took from yeah. it was there is no time That's right. and it, look it really frustrates frustrates me that you keep hearing this argument about corporate welfare because it feels like it's just another way of the same people saying, no, let's not do this yet. It's a different reason. We used to argue about the science. Now we're arguing about who pays. The, the sky and the earth affects us all. The, the outcome affects us all. It should not be just a reliance on, on someone else to take action. It's action we all need to take together. Mm. Yep, uh, excellent. Nikki, there's probably other questions I could ask, but we'll uh, we'll go to our other panelists, and I'll come back with some questions shortly. Uh, next, I wanted to turn to Andrew, if I could, Andrew. And you know, you and I of late have talked a lot about um, as we move into the future, we need how important capability is going to be. Um, and what, and I suppose what I wanted to pose you the question is. You know, why do we need to establish and implement systems to develop capability differently? Um, for those that are already in our industry to enable the change. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking about when you think about the capability needed to be able to enact the change we need? Uh, kia ora koutou, everyone. Uh, and I just want to call out some of Nikki's thoughts around uh, the need for action and the fact distribution networks are at the, I guess, at the epicentre of this whole decarbonisation journey. It's kind of cool to be 
you know, exciting again distribution, I think, has been seen as a little bit snoozy, but I don't certainly don't see it anymore. And what I wanted to do in terms of talking about, I guess, capability needs now, I wanted to take a little bit of a journey down memory lane because um, I think the trick to moving forward is to take the very best of the past and then build on top of it. It's not really about throwing out things from the past and creating new. So that was, that was the theme I wanted to go across. And when I look back across, and I've only been in energy um, about pretty 15 years overall, and in electricity more recently than that. But if I look way, way back in the past, there was certainly what I call a pioneering era. And the days, I guess, of ECNZ, the days of power boards, and they were characterized by you know, big build programs, um, teams getting out there, building big new things, working out how to do it, finding new work processes. And there's a real legacy from that, that what I call the first era, and that's the, I guess, the rule books, the SME, SMEI rule books, which were really a lesson from those early, early days about how to build things, how to build things safely, and, and really just a book of wisdom about how to get these things done. So those are held really, really dear inside the industry. Um, as the as the absolute bottom lines, the things we must always do. So you take that first era, there's a lot more legacies than that, but a really critical first legacy, SMEI rule books. And then I'd, I'd characterise what I call a consolidating phase. And, and that was sort of post the big build programmes and around the time we started to deregulate the industry and break it up into smaller pieces, there was a real focus went on to... Um, being clear and being repeatable about skills and competency. And a lot of it was around safety. So how do we make sure that all of our people in the industry are absolutely safe in the approach to work and the systems of work um, and how they get things done? And, and some great work done there on capability. A couple of call out um, the unit standards work. So we started to say, cool, we can modulate skills and training into unit standards. And also the workplace competency assessment work where organizations start to say, well, we're not actually going to send anybody out there into the workplace unless we can put our hand on heart and say we know they're safe. So we'll actually sign people off at a task level and say, great, we think you've got the skills, the competency, you can go out there safely. And actually, if you add those three things together, so if you start with SMI, you put your um, work-based competency assessments and, your, and your, um, your frameworks together, we've actually been able to step into what I'd call the third phase, which is more recently, probably the last 10 to 20 years, we've really been stretching capability, stretching performance. And we have very, very high utilization now. So we're routinely sending teams of people out onto the networks, um, onto these power plants, very, very efficient dispatch, scheduling, there's very little downtime now. And we've, we've geared the whole system up with a whole lot of plants. So in our business, it's not uncommon to send a team of four out with half a million dollars worth of kit to really amplify the work that you're doing, be able to power through a pile of work and just stay on top of what is huge workloads in the industry, which is really encouraging, right? So you take the you take the lessons of the past, you turn it into a system, you can really pile through a whole lot of stuff. And I don't think that would have been possible 30 years ago. We just wouldn't have had the capability, we wouldn't have had the resources, we wouldn't have to keep up with things. So that's a platform we're building off. But I'll come back to your original question, Johnny. You know, why, what do we need to do now? Why would we continue to invest in capability? And I'd say this, when you're trying to run a system hard and when it's got minimal capacity, it's really unforgiving. So we have to make sure that as we stretch people and as we put people out in the field with very high utilisation, that we know explicitly that they're competent and we build their competency in the flow of work. Um, so we're actually training on the tools 
because there's just no time anymore to take people out for a couple of weeks or a month and take them offline and, and work with them. We really have to train them well, put them in the field and then train them while they're out there on the tools. So that's where we're starting to put our focus now in North Power saying, well, cool, let's make sure that we've got good frameworks. We know what the target is in terms of outcomes. We've got great rulers in terms of competency frameworks. We know what good looks like. But let's make sure our training systems are very tuned in so that everyone who goes out there is right on point. And let's make sure our managers, our supervisors, everyone involved with the work can actually get alongside people, find their gaps, upskill them, and um, just make sure they're both safe and efficient in real time. Now, the reason I wanted to do this little wander back across memory lane is that I think the ability to go forward is actually entirely dependent on this ability to really consolidate what we've got now and drive it hard because there is a fourth phase and the fourth phase is when the, we start to bolt things on these networks and make them even more complicated so you know we routinely put pv on roofs we routinely bolt in a whole lot of batteries we've routinely got cars you know connected to the system and the system starts to act in ways that are less predictable and less clear and our people out there in the field and our engineers in the office need to be able to participate all that sort of stuff so consolidate what we have start to blend in new skills, start to make sure we can train people on the new elements as they turn up and we can keep moving at scale and we can start to anticipate the new technology, work with new technology and make, make all of this future possible. So um, that'll be my parting remark. Um, let's, hold, let's hold all the lessons we've had to date and let's amplify it now with really, really targeted capability work, but we need both, right? So it's not about saying the old stuff was boring and old and now the new stuff's exciting. It's all exciting. Um, we just got to blend the two together. So that was my my thoughts. Thanks, Andrew. I mean, it's not it's not that learning and and development hasn't been going on forever in our industry. It's just probably the biggest thing is the speed and the complexity, isn't it? The things that are you know, changing now. You know, probably three generations of equipment ago, it probably had a useful life of. 60, 70 years, then it went to 40, and then now you're talking about stuff that might come in and change quite rapidly. So I think one of the things that is the big shift is the speed in which we learn just get shorter and shorter. So they're, they're so putting in really, um, really uh, solid systems around learning, implement, you know, was that, you know, some of those old models of plan, do, act and learn or whatever they are, are, are more, just as important, but just the speed in which we do them is going gonna, is gonna to shift. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did, as I was sort of playing around with those phases, they, they get shorter. So yeah. now that, that original pioneering phase was probably 50 years and then a consolidation phase was probably 30 and the stretching phase is probably 20. I and mean, the next phase is probably 10. So you just got to be faster and faster and quicker and quicker to help people understand uh, the new things. But the reason you can go faster is because they've got a whole body and base of knowledge to work from. So you're just adding new elements on top. It's not completely retraining a workforce. It's just lifting their effectiveness very, very specifically. So I agree, it gets fast and we just got to be really, really focused on yeah, keeping up the date. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. And, and a perfect segue to Joe, who's going to challenge us probably more so even with the, with the future of, uh, of workforce and how things are driving and what's driving change. So Joe, I know that you've been exploring this for a number of years now, and you're embracing all sorts of different ways and of, of our future. And, and every time I interact with you, I'm always flabbergasted. I used to think I was up to date and up to speed with the world, but I, every time I talk with Joe, I realize I'm about a decade behind. But so Joe, the question I wanted to pose for you was what do we need to do to embrace the future workers in our industry to drive change? And, and how do you think we can best use the next generation to drive the change we need? 
Great. Thanks, Jono. And uh, it's definitely one of my favourite topics to think about is this um, concept of future workers. And the reason for that is I think it's a change we're not talking about enough. Um, we are on the edge of a huge generational shift. Gen Z is now, the, the first of Gen Z are approaching their late 20s. So Gen Z are well and truly in our workplaces. They are our employees and they are our consumers. And this is a generation that in a very short time will be our leaders, our politicians, our activists, will be shaping uh, the world around us. And in fact, what research shows already is that this generation disproportionately to any other generation is having a bigger impact on the generations that come before it. This is a generation with a voice and a generation for us to listen to. But we don't talk enough, I don't think, about you know, what is the hallmark of Gen Z and, and why is this generation different? Um, I pulled out a few stats that I think start to, to capture a bit and I'll, I'll share it with you. Um, the first is that Gen Z's economic power is the fastest growing across all generational cohorts. So this is research done in the US. So I'll just repeat that because I think it's worth listening to. Gen Z's economic power is the fastest growing so for no other reason than uh, economically, this is a generation to watch, but there's a whole, whole range of other areas um, to, and reasons. So nine out of 10 Gen Zs live in emerging markets. So I think here in, in a more mature market like New Zealand, we often don't see the full impact. Nine out of 10 Gen Zs in emerging markets. This is an interesting one. The average age of a world leader is 62 but almost half the world's population is under 30. So, you know, we have people making decisions today that are completely different to the generation that will very shortly be moving into those positions of influence. Uh, young people today, when surveyed, the issues that young people care about are the environment, social equity, and marginalized people's rights. So this is a generation that is far more socially aware than many of the generations from before. And it's unsurprising really, when you think about it, this generation has been formed in, in the bookend between 9-11, when our world completely shifted in terms of our understandings of security uh, and COVID. You know, this generation is the, the generation that has really faced into the biggest impacts on their schooling and education. And sitting behind all that is climate change. This is a generation that's grown up with the backdrop of a genuine fear and disillusionment that the generations before them have left them to inherit this really challenging world. So there are some aspects of this generation that really are quite unique. They are also uh, more diverse than other generations. They are more authentic to who they are and what they expect. And they expect that of their employer. Now, they also expect that in terms of what they buy from a consumer perspective. So we're starting to see, see this big shift. One of the, the biggest implications for us as employers uh, and as producers is that this generation are really starting to shift the thinking around how we work. Um, we saw this recently with our business where my uh, business partner has been doing some work in Europe with a, a very large global organization Five years ago, they interviewed their incoming graduates to find out what was really important to them. And what the graduates talked about was the what. So they talked about the purpose of the organization. I want to work in this organization because the purpose resonates with me. The purpose is environmentally focused. The purpose is authentic. 
they redid that same survey last year, five years on. And not only were graduates talking about the what, so the purpose is really important, but there was a big shift to talk about the how. So in line with authenticity and, and activism, this is a generation that wants to work the how of working. They're expecting an inclusive work environment. They're expecting flexibility. They're expecting fast decision-making. This is a generation that might have had their first business on Instagram when they were 12 or gaming on, on YouTube. They're very savvy around platforms, around digital, around speed, uh, and around entrepreneurship. So they want to work in a way that really reflects that. They also want to have their values recognized in the way they work. So they're really asking of organizations to respond in a very different way. What I think is really exciting about all this is actually many of the things that this generation is influencing and changing has flow on benefits for every generation in the workplace. So what's good for Gen Z is actually good for all of us. Uh, we are seeing, for example, a cross-generational shift towards purpose. In 2018, Harvard Business Review did a study that showed that nine out of 10 people would salary sacrifice for increased purpose in the work they do. And this is the type of change that Gen Z is, is really driving. Um, so, you know, in response, Jono, to the question around how do we respond, I think the really great news is that as we make our workplaces more inclusive, more flexible, more purpose-driven, uh, as we start to really focus and respond to some of the, the issues that Nikki and, and Andrew both touched on, not only will we make our workplaces and work environments more attractive for future workers, we'll actually make it more attractive for the people who are already with us in the workplace. So it's a win-win on, on every level. And probably just the last point I'll finish on, which I think is particularly exciting for this, this forum, is that in 2019, EY did a global survey on industries that young people were interested in working in. And 66% of teenagers said that green energy was appealing. So, you know, the future is bright for this industry if we can listen to, respond, and create opportunities for the voices of the generation coming through to be heard and valued. Uh, and that's in the interest of all of us, I think. So, thanks, John. Back to you. Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. That's um, and uh, what I picked up there is, is just listening. You sort of, I think you said there was about what what that matters to them about environment, social equity, et cetera, things like that, which sort of not once did it mention corporate welfare, which I think Nikki was saying is, which is a, you know, one of the blockages we might have. So, yeah. and and I, one would say that this generation isn't going to accept that we'll get our environmental position done by some compliant date 15 years no. in the future. They're, they're, they're no. expect, they expect more than that. And in fact, actually, yeah. gone are the days where you interview them, they're interviewing you. And they're finding yeah. out what your purpose is, what your environmental position is, what it's going to be like to work here, et cetera. But people would think that's 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 scary. I see it as a huge opportunity, you know, to have to have people that want to work for you and be and to drive you along for the things that you need to achieve. I, I see that as as great excitement, really, for me. But but it is daunting because there are, it's a different it's a different generation. As you say, I hadn't contemplated that. Was it sixty average age of People in power, or the in the political sixty-two, well, they, uh, and half their population is less than thirty. That's yeah, it's very powerful, and and yet we still don't create enough opportunities for those voices to be heard, and, and that's something that I think you know all of us will benefit from. Is how do we create 
more space um, for the, for generation intergenerational dialogue. Um, you know, Gen Z have something to say. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Um, I have a, I had some, just a few questions that I wanted to sort of pose, and I really I, I, I'll put them to each panelist. Nikki, I was going to start with you, and actually, uh, it's one we uh, is was the budget kind to you last week, and if so, what is it, what's it going to do to Eka's program of work? Yes, well, it blows it apart. It, 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 we, we were treated very kindly, and um, because because it's in the budget process, they like to do things in in, in four year kind of timeframes. That's that's the budget parameters, yes. and so um, and so it's not Eka that receives this money because Eka is just a, a conduit for the program. But the government investing. And government investment in decarbonising industry program as a whole received 650 million over the next four years, and um, and probably probably if if um, most people in the audience are, are under 30, you won't have read the press release. Um, but the press release does actually um, indicate as well that that, that the program's longer than four years. It's at least seven, okay. so it's got it means that we've got this long term commitment. Um, we've uh, we've been developing a program for that. It's it's going to have about four components to it. The first is a contestable, regular contestable round of funding for process heat decarbonisation, which is what we had under Giddy One. And um, one of the reasons we got that expanded funding was that Giddy One was just so successful. Business really rose to the challenge. Um, and the first RFP for that actually goes live on the 9th of June. So we've we've just we're racing. Um, but, but we're going to get there. Uh, quite exciting, though, because with the expanded program, we're able to move into areas where we couldn't play before. So um, we've got we've got quite a lot of that money will go into the SME space, and um, we're going to really look forward to co-investing with SMEs to make sure that this transition extends to everyone. That there's an opportunity for everyone. Um, we'll have to do that in a in a very turn the handle way so it won't be the case of SMEs saying hey I've got this great project can you fund it that's um, that's unwieldy we can't manage that it'll have to be um, by making data driven decisions about specific technologies that SMEs could apply for funding for that's that's how that um, has any hope of working uh, we're going to be able to partner with uh, large energy users or with um, with energy users who perhaps aren't large, but um, they have a sophisticated enough need or a portfolio need that just means it's not appropriate for that contestable funding round. So we want to develop some partnerships that again are longer term and reflect commitment to, to actual action. Um, and then the fourth limb of the program is that one of the real barriers, which I probably should have um, called out before, is infrastructure. So there's infrastructure, oh, there's supply chain constraints in terms of both infrastructure and resource capability. And of course, you're focusing on the on the resource one, but um, with the predicted extent of electrification, that just can't happen um, with with the infrastructure they've got in place at the moment. And of course, again, there's the problem of who pays for it and, and what's fair. So the fourth um, element of that program will be the ability for either individual businesses. If it's uh, a project that, that just benefits them, or um, or anyone, if it's infrastructure that's shared infrastructure that could benefit a range of users, to apply for funding to help overcome that barrier, um, everything except the RFP is still in design. We haven't made any final decisions, so it's 
an exciting time and we need lots of help from people who are interested in, in joining the industry. Excellent. It's always good to hear that the uh, that the rhetoric from government to making the changes backed up with uh, with budget support. So I'm pleased that that's uh, that's in the going in the right direction. Andrew, just a question to you. You know, what do you think might? We've talked a lot about about the you know what we need to do. What do you think might get in the way of 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 the change we need? What do you think needs to we need to overcome? Oh, I, I think the trick is just to get on with it and try some things and, and collaborate. You know, hats off to the NGA Academy and other people in ECA and others who are just putting um, trials on the ground and proving things up. We've, um, you know, we've been working with Transparent Top Energy up here, looking at renewable energy zones. So that that's just come back from consultation, and you know, we're just doing exactly that. We're saying, well, we see huge. Um, huge renewable resource here in the north, what would it take to deploy it and release it? And that's been a really powerful piece actually and quite quick, like Transpower literally turned up within a week of us saying, could we try this top energy as well? And the engineers got together very, very quickly to say, what capacity could you unlock on the networks? How could you potentially come up with a commercial construct to make it work? Uh, and I was, you know, that's just one example of I think the industry wanting solutions and wanting to try things out and being very, very open to a practical dialogue on what's possible. Uh, Transparent have got that consultation at the moment. It'll come out, I think, mid-year in terms of you know, where to trial that concept and and um, getting it sort of live on the ground. But it's it's an example of when companies go out and say, hey, we think there's a good idea, how quick it is at the moment for other um, entities swinging around and say, great, if that helps us get to um, get get the decarbonisation outcomes. Uh, we're all on board, and we'll back you up. So I would say, you know, what would stop us is just assuming that we don't need to do anything differently. You know, what will enable it? Just give things a go. Um, I think you'll find that if you put something good on the table, uh, others are very very quick to turn up. So it's an exciting time. That's good. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Joe, when Andrew talks there about more of a you know experimental, get things going, may not have all the plans articulated. That requires some change in leadership what do, what do you see what sort of leadership do you see being required to enact the changes that you were talking about earlier or what andrew and nikki have been talking about yeah definitely you probably saw me nodding wildly when andrew was talking because i think that that move to experimentation and collaboration is really what will make the difference you know as nikki said we need to make decisions far more quickly and often in far more ambiguity because the world is changing so quickly so leaders starting to move to a mindset of uh, openness and experimentation uh, to, to try things, to not be afraid of failure. You know, to, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know that fail fast, fail small. Um, and many times that unlocks the whole new innovative approach. I think to the, the collaborative piece, um, I've once worked with someone who talked about the difference between cooperation and collaboration. And their observation was that New Zealand companies are very good at cooperation. You know, we're very good at playing nicely in the sandpit with each other. Actually, real collaboration, which is where you get the innovation and the gains, that requires having skin in the game. Uh, and that requires uh, leaders to step back from ego to a large extent, to be more humble, to open up to, to different voices in the room, not just generational voices, but you know, what can we learn from Tao Māori around sustainability? You know, what can we learn from different perspectives of, of people who might not usually be in the room when decisions are made? So, so being far more diverse. 
Uh, we're seeing a lot of organisations move to different ways of teaming. So forming teams around specific problems and unlocking those uh, rather than the traditional siloed hierarchies. You know, and of course, the ecosystem that, that LUMO has created by enabling a forum in which a whole bunch of different organisations can quickly come together, share insights, unlock problems, uh, build capability together. You know, that takes a leader's mindset, which is much more future focused um, and much more focused on uh, abundance, if you like, rather than scarcity. And, and that's the big shift that we're, we're really starting to see. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Um, Nikki, you were telling me the other day about a great example, I think it was down south somewhere, where you're already starting to see this come to uh, come into action, collaboration, regional thinking. That, yeah, could you expand a wee bit on that? Um, sure, sure, love to. Hopefully I do so do that lucidly. The, um, so one of the things that we've realised is that, and I, I did make a nod to this right at the start, is that this is a systemic challenge. So... So we need an ecosystem response. Um, and so we, we have moved to using one of our um, flagship programs, which has produced some really good uh, outcomes for individual businesses to see if we can do this on a regional scale. And what this is, is what we call an energy transition accelerator. And it, it takes um, an individual business's circumstances, so what does its current profile of energy use, emissions, et cetera, look like? Um, what are the innovative technologies available to it? What are the barriers? Um, what are the different options that it could consider in getting from where it is today right to, to net carbon zero and over what time frame? Um, and so that results in a report that sets out what's economically and technically feasible in a time frame for that business to do that. So imagine if you could do that for a whole region. And this is what we're trying to do. Um, it's called the Regional ETA, and we're pilot, piloting it in Southland. It's got two parts to it. And the first is demand, which I think I've I think I've outlined. If you can imagine that on a regional scale, and imagine the information that you get about potential timing of of when the big energy users in your region are looking at converting. Um, and then that is bookended at the other end with information about supply. So um, what we're intending doing and have done for Southland is to look at the supply constraints and the opportunities on the electricity network um, and in biomass as well, so that we can take that information and overlay it with demand and see um, where are things matching nicely and where is there a complete mismatch and therefore um, what do certain actors, whether they're government or the, the EDB or businesses need to do and some recommendations that come out of that. Um, one of the beautiful things that that, that has um, resulted at in, in Southland is that the EDB down there, who's a really innovative um, crowd and great champions of decarbonisation, PowerNet, um, they've told us that they get asked the same information by hundreds of, of people and it's just so resource intensive going out over and over again. So to be able to get the, the information about not only the availability or the constraints of network supply, but also potential cost so that businesses can make the right sorts of decisions um, just saves these busy people all that all that time and effort as well. What we're hoping is that, that now that we've got the draft information of everything together, we can get all stakeholders into a room and um, we can actually pull out some shared 
problems that we can develop shared solutions to in a collaborative way. And uh, we're really hoping that that Guinea funding for infrastructure will play a, a key role there. There's also quite a few businesses who um, don't necessarily have great information about the technology that's best placed to address some of their um, process challenges. For example, um, uh, some technologies are better for the low processed heat or, or heat at lower temperatures, like heat pumps, and some are better for heat at, at higher temperatures. Biomass is completely different in application to electricity. So getting out some of that really good base information should help everybody as well. Um, quite excited about the results of the Southland pilot. We should have those by the end of June and then we're going to roll it out across New Zealand. Excellent. Thanks, Nikki. It's great to hear that the uh, down in the south are, are leading the way. But it's interesting, you know, when you talk about earlier on, you talked about um, the number of boilers in the South Island how they've been uh, converted. I can I can only imagine that some of the boilers that haven't been com converted us there's some serious energy users out there, being dairy factories, manufacturing plants. These things use more energy consumption than maybe a whole town. So it's not an easy, you know, <laughs> this is not just an easy transition where you can just go, who wants to go next? There's uh there's uh demand supply issues that need to be converted. So look, it's it's a really interesting and, and I think the way of doing it is doing it as a collaborative region. And Joe, to your point earlier, there is quite a big difference between between cooperation and collaboration. Collaboration is sometimes quite um, unpleasant because you've got to work through to find a, a common goal. So look, we've got, uh, we're getting close to the end of that time and there was, uh, there was one question posted online. I'm not sure uh, it's directed to you, Joe. I'm not sure if it popped up in your chat, but it's. I'll read it out. So considering that if we want to have the actual generation to take decisions, we must provide them with the knowledge so they can do so the questions are so the questions are on your experience what kind of activities do you think would fit on this generation and do you think them including a cross-cultural perspective would increase the quality of the future decisions or do you invest the time on another perspective so i don't know if you can read through that and sort of there's parts yeah. to that you might want to choose one part or all of it but sure um oh. i am unmuted i didn't want to do the uh, talking on mute um look great question i I think that every every generation and everyone has a perspective with something to contribute, right? So one of the things we know is that when you want innovation or innovative outcomes, having more diversity in the room is initially more challenging because bringing diverse perspectives together and listening is harder, but actually ultimately more rewarding in terms of innovation. So I think definitely having, whether it's cross-generational, cross-cultural, uh, having a range of people who reflect different, um, you know, whether it's gender or sexuality or life experience or education, the more diversity you have in the room, the more likely you are to create innovative outcomes. So creating forums in which those kind of diverse perspectives can come together, I think is really important. Uh, in terms of um, actually taking decisions and having knowledge. The really interesting thing about the world is a gross generalization, but actually every decision we're having to make today is unknown for every generation. If you take COVID, for example, we none of us had ever faced into a pandemic of this nature. None of us had ever had to balance the kind of decisions that we were making. Um, obviously, epidemiologists and others have deep expertise, but for those of us in the business environment, it was new to all of us. 
and increasingly the challenges that we're facing will be and will continue to be new to all of us. And that means that everyone has a vested interest. Uh, and then actually, when you look at the younger generation, I would argue their vested interest is even greater because they will be disproportionately impacted. Uh, so should have a voice. Uh, one of the, the observations about that quote around the, the leaders being 62, but most of the world being under 30, is that a huge proportion of those under 30 year olds are currently disenfranchised and don't have a voice. So, you know, so how do we create that voice is something that we can do as leaders, both within our work environments uh, and within society as a whole. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the, the question, Felipe, but... Thanks, Joe, and thanks for the, uh, for the question, uh, Felipe. Um, right, so we're getting near the end of our time. I, I want to give the, each of the panellists a minute each to have their final thoughts on what they think is the, is the thing, the one message they might want to leave us with about driving the change we need. And I'll start with Andrew, if that's okay. If you can, any final thoughts to leave us with today? Oh, I, I, excitement, I think, would be the word. Um, it, it's a pretty pivotal time in this industry. We are right in the middle of some critical generational change and environmental change and um, where the people get to lead it through. So, yeah, that's exciting. It's exciting for everyone involved. It's exciting for working together and finding um, a solution. And it, it's been really encouraging for me, just again, listening to the panellists in terms of the, just the desire and the willingness to get on the field, try things out, work with each other and put programs up that, that could unlock it. Um, I think with that sort of energy and that sort of willingness, we, we've got a really a really good shot of unlocking this thing. Um, so that was, I think I'll just leave it at that. Let's, um, yeah, let's make a start and let's, let's bring this one home. I think Jono might be frozen, but I'll hand it over to you, Nikki. Uh, I, th I think that Andrew's covered the macro really well, so I'm going to go micro, so we've got all bases covered. If we if we are um, agreed that we need decision makers, we, we need to make decisions fast, then it's not as easy as that. We need to be thinking about what enables decisions to be made fast. And from the experience that we had with Guinea 1.0, we saw that decision makers need to be very well prepared and so a lot of this technology and this, this new landscape is quite new to them. Um, some of them might be around 69, you never know. They're probably closer to that than 30 anyway. Um, so I would, I would be urging anyone who wants a decision made fast to be investing in preparing the decision makers and making sure that they're also upskilled on what's needed. Thanks, Nikki. Sorry, I, my technology just died on me there for two seconds. I dropped off the call. Uh, Joe, I think we're finishing with you on your last uh, last comments. Right, thanks. And um, if I was to pick one word, it, it would be collaboration. I think we're moving into to a world where we can't solve problems on our own, but the answers are somewhere there. And so the more we come together, the more we listen to different voices, the more likely we are to solve solve those problems. I think it's incredibly daunting. Uh, you know, the challenge is real and, and we are in crisis. Um, you know, it's not out there, as Nikki said, it's right here, right now. And, you know, we all need to lean into that. Uh, but at the same time, that gives us the chance to do something really unique. Uh, so, you know, suspending disbelief, opening up, putting our egos aside, 
listening, uh, we can create and find the solutions that will give us all a sustainable future. And, and that is exciting. You're exactly right, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you, Joe, and thank you to others. Um, I think it is it is an interesting and daunting challenge for those of us, uh, there's a number on this call, including our panellists who are leaders within this sector who have got their role or leadership role. And I think I summed it up the other day as it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a burden to, to wear, but an honour to carry. So, you know, we've, we've got the burden of the change, but, but it's an honour to be in roles in which we can influence the future for, um, for our generation, future generations, et cetera, et cetera. So, like I say, excitement and daunting and equal, and equal dollops, which, are, which is great to be part of. Look, um, can I please take uh, time to thank our three panellists uh, uh, for sharing your wisdom today. Um, and it's, it's been fantastic to hear that. Um, uh, thank you to all of our guests who have listened in. Uh, and obviously, thank you to Briar and the team at Lumo and Erica for, for coordinating all this. Um, you can find the Lumo series if you're interested, the Lumo series on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. This is one of many. There's already been two or three already in the, in the bag. And so please um, make, uh, if you're interested in seeing this again or seeing some of the others, please uh, search for that through your normal podcast viewing. Uh, we will make this recording available. Um, so follow us. We've got a link, uh, Energy Academy LinkedIn page, which um, which is fantastic for keeping in touch with everything that we're doing. And we also have mailing lists if you want to join that. Please, um, please join us all through our LinkedIn page or through our uh, Energy Academy website. Final thanks again to the Lumo partners. For we could, without them, we couldn't make this happen. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be working with them as we all work on this challenge we need to face for the future. It's exciting times ahead and look forward to continuing to be a participant uh, involved in that in the future. So thank you again, everybody, and I wish you a good day and look forward to working with you on the, on taking this future forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kaki Thanks, everyone.